the New Zealand Business Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, your strategic and proactive IT partner. Hi folks, I'm Paul Spain, Founder and Chief Executive at Guerrilla Technology, the IT partner that solves your business problems through smart use of tech. It's my great privilege this week to bring you my exclusive conversation with Sir Graham Henry, of course the ex-All Blacks coach, and he shares his story of how he dealt with failure and success on this week's episode of the New Zealand Business Podcast. If you're here for the first time, welcome and thank you for letting me be a part of your business journey. The New Zealand Business Podcast has a pretty simple goal. The goal is to share the stories of top leaders in New Zealand in order to help you become even more successful. Along the way, we unlock all sorts of knowledge on leadership, startups, acquisitions, management, funding, and so much more. So let's jump in to this week's show with Sir Graham Henry, and I look forward to chatting with you again very soon. Well, welcome along to the podcast. Today we have the privilege of spending some time with Sir Graham Henry, who in New Zealand is is a bit of a legend. And um, I, I guess before we dive in, I've got to I've got to make a confession. And we are a rugby mad nation, but I'm one of those that's. Uh, that's not a big sports fan, but Sir Graham, I'm a, I'm a fan of you because you have uh, achieved great great things throughout your career, and I guess the the sort of steel and the leadership it takes to uh, to be able to achieve what you've achieved is something that I think a lot of people are probably quite interested in uh, in hearing some insights on. So thank you for joining us. Our pleasure. Now. Wonder if you could paint a little bit of a picture in terms of where did you start out? Where did your initial interest in sport come from? At what age did you did you get exposed to rugby? Exposed to the the sports field and uh, and and I guess start start getting interested. Oh, early in primary school, I suppose five or six. I played mainly rugby and cricket. Loved it. Um, I was a Christ. I was born and bred in Christchurch. So I played down there, obviously. Um, so I started at a pretty young age, but most of our young people today start, you know, when they first start primary school or six or seven. Was it something that you took to quite naturally? Because I remember for myself when I tried to get into sport, and I, I played a bit of cricket, uh, not so much rugby, um, but I don't think I was very good, so it was. Uh, I wasn't naturally motivated to uh, to progress so far. But what what were you like? I was probably above average, uh, to be fair. I wasn't a superstar, and I wasn't uh, one of the kids who made up the numbers. So I was I was probably above average. But in those days, now you're talking about the 1950s, and um, there wasn't a lot of alternatives to sport. All kids played sport. I think the challenge today is is to get a lot of kids on the sporting field. So it was a, a different scene then, different environment. Didn't have television. <laughs> it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Um, and so everybody played sport. Uh, whether you were fit to play sport, I mean skilled to play sport or not. And so it was a, just a normal thing to do. And Christchurch is a... It's probably the hub of New Zealand sport in many ways um, over the over the years. 
And what part in in that did, did your family play in, in encouraging you and getting you to games and, and, and so on? How much how enthusiastic were they about sport at that stage? Oh, my father and mother were always they played a bit of sport. Um, they were enthusiastic about that. But my father had a business that involved working on Saturdays. So he had a, um, a mechanics business, if you like. And um, so he couldn't spend a lot of time. And things were tough financially. So, so usually, you know, people uh, shared the, the responsibility of getting young kids from A to B. Uh, he, he was involved in that some of the time. So I took a wee bit of time off work. Uh, but it was just... That was the, the norm in those days. Parents took their kids to rugby and cricket and other sports and watched them play, and it was just an expectation. Yeah. Nothing out of, outside the normal. And what, what was the expectation uh, on you from an ap- academic perspective growing up? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, was, I always struggled a bit. Yeah. Have you read the book? No. I, I struggled a bit. Um, so it took me a while to mature as a student, so I was better on the sports field than I was in the classroom. So uh, what was the sort of point for you where you decided that the sports track, uh, physical education was, was you know, where you, wanted to, uh, where you wanted to head and into teaching and so on, those things? What, what were the triggers? Well, I... I when I was at school, final year at school, I played in the first 15 and first 11 at Christchurch Boys High. And so that was an achievement, you know. There wasn't too many guys played both. I think I was the only one in my year. Um, I'm trying to be modest here, of course, and, <laughs> but that, I'm just telling you the facts. And I was keen to be a physical education teacher then, and one of my mentors was a guy named John Graham, Sir John Graham, yes. ex-principal of Auckland Grammar School, who was a fabulous man, you know, and I had a huge amount of respect for him and got to know him pretty well. He taught me at Christchurch Boys. He coached me in a senior rugby team, senior club team in Christchurch, called High School Old Boys. Yes, yes. Um, and he, we talked quite a bit, and he suggested I do the arts at Canterbury University, history, geography, English. He said, because if you are ambitious, Ted, if you are ambitious, um, you won't get there as a physita. I said, okay. So I did that, and it was the wrong thing to do. Right. I was a failure. And... Um, I, I worked. I thought I worked reasonably hard. I just had no um, no uh, ability as a student. I didn't know how to do the business. So what did that? Ha- what did, how to pass the exams? Yeah. So did, what did that failure look like, and how did it make you well, feel? It, it meant I failed. I think failure is pretty obvious, and I didn't pass the exams. Um, my parents said, "Well, you better go out and find a job." <laughs> so I. I joined the National Bank, which is now the ANZ Bank, is it? And my brother worked for them, and he was very bright. My brother was much brighter than me. And he did a BCom part-time and worked at the National Bank, and I joined the National Bank, and it was okay. I did okay. I got some promotion, quick promotion, but I thought, hell, I can't stand working in an office for the rest of my life. This is not me. 
So I resigned after six months, and I got a job in in um, Firestone Tire Factory as a as a tire maker's assistant. Hard work, but good money. And I got a lot of money together. In those days, a lot of money together. And I applied for a Target University physical, physical education school. I played cricket for Canterbury and and um, and played senior rugby. And so I had the perhaps the the sporting side boxes ticked, and they accepted me. And I haven't pay, failed a paper since. And then I did a I did a degree part time when I was teaching at Auckland Grammar School. So I don't know if I got more, any more intelligent. I just uh, knew the way around preparing properly and and preparing to set exams. So I matured as a student, I guess. That 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 speaks to me about following your passions rather than rather than just the things that other people would would put on you. How how important was that for you to to go after the the things that you you loved? Well, I loved I I enjoyed it yeah. immensely. Um, and it enabled me to not only keep playing, which I was doing anyway, but also it grew into coaching. So, you know, coaching sport was a, an extension of the physical education teacher's job. I thought it was a very important part of that. Um, and so things developed in the coaching area. Mm. Now, that that success that uh, you had playing both rugby and cricket, when you when you look back on that now, were there were there great coaches and, and, and great leaders and other people that were surrounding you? How much of it was was that and how much of it was the drive? Because I think you've got a pretty uh, a pretty large amount of drive compared to compared to the average. Yeah, I'm fanatical. <laughs> Obsessive uh, as my wife would say. Uh, but I know I, John Graham was a, a major factor. Um, like he, I finished up teaching at Auckland Grammar School. He asked me to come up and teach in the school. Uh, best decision I ever made, I think. But there was other people. Like we had a guy named Gordon Slatter who was a, a veteran of the Second World War. He wrote books. He was a history teacher, so he wrote novels. But he was in the army in the Second World War, and he was our first 15 coach. We had another guy, Wally Mapplebeck, who played cricket for Canterbury, uh, who was our cricket coach, who served in the Navy in the Second World War. And I remember those guys very distinctly. And I don't know if they were great cricket and rugby coaches, but they were top men who you respected and you wanted to play for. Um, so, and you, like I rubbed shoulders with the Hadleys and... Robert Anderson and um, John Christensen, who was a New Zealand gold medalist at Montreal in hockey. Uh, Alan Hounsell, David Trist. So in my cricket team, there was five guys who played for New Zealand. One guy played for New Zealand hockey. Um, and just rubbing shoulders with those sort of people was 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 stimulating. You know, we all played off each other and all. Um, egged each other on to get better. So you, you you grew up in an environment where sporting success was an expectation. That's great. 
And I didn't, I wasn't great. You know, I was an average rugby player. I was too slow. <laughs> had a, I had a reasonable brain for the game and I could catch and pass but couldn't run. So that was a problem. In cricket, I played at a very young age at first class level. And then when I thought I was got quite good at the game, I couldn't break into the first class scene. So I went back to Christchurch after being at Otago University and I played a couple of games for Otago, but a guy named Barry Milburn was keeping for Otago and he was one of the New Zealand keepers. And then when I got back to Christchurch, a black named Wadsworth was keeping for Canterbury and he became a very, very fine international cricketer. So there was people better than me, which was annoying, so I couldn't get back in. (laughs) Uh, But I still had a passion for it and I probably wasn't as dedicated as an athlete as I should have been. And um, so, you know, I think part of the desire to coach well was because I didn't think I fulfilled my potential as a player. Now, that may have been um, over over analysing my own ability, probably thought I was better than I was. But um, so I was a bit disappointed I didn't break into a higher level uh, in sport and and coaching sport I loved and I always had the ambition to coach at a high level even when I was first started which I think is probably a sign of arrogance <laughs> being up myself a bit but I just loved being in that environment and you know, I was lucky to my first big teaching job I, I taught at Christchurch Boys High when I where I first went to school when I went to sc- where I went to school and then I got this job at Auckland Grammar in my third year of teaching in John Graham's school and he was a person who who knew how to inspire people by his by the way he conducted himself really like he was a he was an example setter which is very important if you're going to be a leader yes and also he gave people an opportunity to develop and he understood that leadership was about developing other people and there's a huge number of people who, who taught it in school, became principals of secondary schools throughout the country. And I was one of those. And, and so we lay a lot to that, to that man, example and his encouragement and him giving us opportunity. So I, t- I coached rugby and cricket at Auckland Grammar School. I coached both the first teams from, at various times. I was there for nine years. I finished up being a rugby coach because it's still just the way it went, I guess, and with a young family trying to do both was started to become a bit inhibiting. <laughs> and so I became a rugby coach and I was very keen on it. Coaching the Auckland Grammar First 15 was was the ideal environment to learn to be a coach. You know, you great school, top young kids who wanted to be good, wanted to be successful, wanted to play well. Uh, were tight as a group of people as a team and so it was an ideal environment to to start a coaching career the the people that you rubbed shoulders with in terms of sports people and in terms of people like uh, Sir John Graham and so on um, there must have been some flow on from surrounding yourself with, with those sorts of people in terms of what you believe is possible. I'm sure there's a difference. You know, if you if you weren't surrounded by those same people, it would have been probably a lot harder for you to, to get in the mindset of believing the things that you, you believed about, um, you know, where your ambitions around uh, coaching, for instance. Yeah, I think you've got to have a passion for what you're doing, and I had a passion for what I was doing. 
Mm. Uh, and I think if you haven't got a passion for what you're doing, you might as well give up. So I had that passion, but I was very lucky to be able to rub shoulders with some very influential people who who you learn from, you know, and not so much from what they say, but what they do. Mm. And I, like Wilson's winner race, so Wilson winner race son was in the first 15 James when I was coaching the team. Uh, unfortunately, he died of cancer just recently, and, and so, but like he was a fabulous all black captain and a, an outstanding person and, and uh, Bob Graham who was John Graham's brother who captained Auckland for a long time you may not know all of these things but he was a very successful Auckland captain and they held the Randolph Shield for a long time and he was a captain um, people like that you know you have the you're fortunate enough to his John um, Bob's son was also on the team so you have you're fortunate enough to rub shoulders with those people um also on the cricket, you know, Martin Crow was in the, one of the teams that I coached. And, um, like, his father was a, a well-known first-class cricketer and just rubbing shoulders with those people and the boys, mm. quite frankly, because mm. like guys like Grant Fox and Nicky Allen and the Wetton brothers and John Drake and Martin Crow and Mark Greatbacks and many others went on and played at the highest level and played well, you know, and... And it was just a, a unique environment that everybody aspired to being the best they could be. So what do you think it is that has made New Zealand as a, as a, as a country so great at sports? I mean, rugby, obviously, but you know when you look at it on a per capita basis, we just seem to be able to punch above our weight and you know, I think um, you know, we, we see that in some areas of business too and you know, I'm, I'm curious on what your, what your thoughts are what are, the, what are the things that allow that to happen and how do we make sure that we keep doing that and we get better at it Yeah, that's the golden question, isn't it? <laughs> um, like I think we put ourselves on the map because in the first and second world wars a lot of our people went overseas and mm. and and covered themselves with distinction and we lost a lot of lives overseas but we were highly respected by the rest of the world and on the commitment in those two world wars I know it's an ugly scene and it's not very hard to talk about but when you go to France and you're with the All Blacks you know the French just think New Zealand people are just out, absolutely outstanding people a lot of there's a lot of New Zealand blood on French soil in those two world wars and they yes. they looked after the French <laughs> and a lot of other people so I think we set a standard and um, you know we the rugby for example was our national game in this country and and it's something that people held on to and 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 um, respected the all black team and they helped to put New Zealand on the map as well and a lot of other sports you know the yachting and the netball and the horse racing and the horse breeding and um, and as you go on you know we've got we've like our latest Olympic successes were the best ever why is that um, I guess it's a great environment to grow up grow up in. You know, there's opportunity for young people to to succeed. I think we want all kids to play sport, not just those who are very good at it. You know, there's an expectation that kids play sport, and what does that do for you? I think there's an understanding that sport develops character, 
it has its challenges too from time to time. Oh yeah, which gets in the newspapers, but it does develop character, and you understand what is why it's important to work as a team to produce something special. Um, you you um, go out of your way to help your mate, but I get very simply is that sport enables you to to be reasonably healthy and to make good mates and enjoy yourself. Yeah, for it to be very simplistic. And young kids want to enjoy themselves, be reasonably healthy, and have good friends, and enjoy themselves. So it's 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 an easy way to do that. It's life, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess we shouldn't take that too seriously. And I think some of the coaches who coach young kids try and coach them like the All Blacks. <laughs> and the number one criteria is for those kids to go out there and enjoy themselves and want to come back next week and the week after. So how do we how do we maintain a very enjoyable sporting environment for young people. It gets serious enough as it as they get older. That's that's interesting because that's something that I think in in business we look for too is that that balance between the seriousness and actually and actually having fun and and you know certainly uh, for myself with my years in business I've I've always wanted to create an environment that that everyone uh, on the team enjoys being in, as, as you know, hopefully um, as much as I I do. Um, maybe not quite as much because when it's your, your own thing and you're uh, you're designing and, and and leading the business, you get um, um, uh, you, maybe a little bit more uh, control there. But when we look at the at the teams that you've built, and particularly at at the All Blacks. I'm curious how you managed to create the the type of um, sportsmanship and, and and team values um, because you often you'll often see that uh, you know and you talked about a little bit earlier with the sort of the confidence you got when you were a bit younger and you were you were good you had a lot of confidence in yourself you know sometimes when people get good at sports they get very focused on themselves but you managed to build the all blacks into a into a team that seemed to really be able to step back and and put the team first how do you do that oh, i think well i was lucky i had a lot of experience and you know i coached for 40 years and the all black part of it was when i was 58 to 65 and I started coaching in my late 20s. And so I was fortunate enough to go through a lot of experiences. And the big experience was in the, in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, to cut a long story short, I was, a, I was an authoritarian coach. So it was a coach-driven environment. Um, and it did pretty good. You were very successful right right through that period. Yeah, till I hit, till I went to the UK, and and then you know the Welsh team was pretty good for a while um, until they got sick of me. Um, and then I coached the British Lions to Australia in two hundred one, and and that wasn't as successful as it should have been. And I should never have been appointed to coach that team. Why not? Because I wasn't ready. I was green at that level. You know, I wasn't an experienced international coach. And you can see today the most successful coaches are the, are the Steve Hansons and the, and the Joe Smiths and, and the Eddie Joneses, um, who I think are probably the three best coaches in the world. And, and they've had years of experience of coaching at that level, particularly 
Steve Hansen and Eddie Jones. Yes. Um, and it's not something that you you start today and you're brilliant tomorrow. So it takes a lot of experience to be the best you can be. And I learned from my UK experience and the British Isles experience, the Welsh experience and the British Lions experience, was that being a coach-driven side wasn't going to cut the mustard anymore. You know, so people change and and the kids you're, you're coaching change and the education changes. So they have a say in their education now, which is unbelievable. <laughs> and and so they expected to have a say in how, how the team evolved and how it played and the culture of the team and the values of the team and so on. And when I left under a cloud, I resigned from the Welsh side and I, and I had two more years of the contract to go. Yes. And I resigned. I hit the wall, had depression if depression means lying on your bed reading a book and avoiding people. Um, and I thought, well, I still had the passion to do the job, but I knew I had to change. I couldn't coach the way I'd coached for 30 years. So how do you, how do you figure that out? Well, how, how do you decide what you should change? Who do you, who do you talk to? Well, you don't talk to you, <laughs> Well, you talk to Ray and your wife, who, who was great, and you talk to a few close mates, but yep. you realise that that's not cutting the mustard anymore. Mm. And so when I got back to New Zealand and was lucky enough after having involved in three competitions, two with Auckland, one with the Blues, yeah. in 2000, end of 2002 and 2003, I got appointed, those three teams won the championships and I had an involvement with them and I got appointed all-black coach. And so, again, I was head coach and I knew that we had to change. You know, we had to become a team-driven um, a team-driven environment rather than a coach-driven environment. And, um, and that took time. And that started in 2004 when I first coached the All Blacks. It took a while to start the process. And um, it's still evolving today. Now, dealing with failure, I think, you know, we all, um, you know, we all have failures at, at, at varying points, um, but there's a big difference in terms of how some people manage to respond and, and, and where, that, where they go from there. Um, when, when the All Blacks lost the World Cup, how how did you get the get the um, um, the the energy and uh, the confidence to be able to get back up and have another go at it? Well, I assume you're talking about two thousand and seven. Yeah, and um, like, there's never been a lack of desire. And that all-black team in 2007, I had a huge amount of respect for. I respected the young men who played the game. And um, and they had a record which is similar to the current team. That may not have been quite as good, but it have been knocking on 90% over three years. Yes. Leading into that, um, and that's massive, mm. you know, leading into that World Cup in 2007. So we had a great record. Uh, we got bowled over by the French in the quarterfinal, 20 points to 18 I keep on talking about this. I'm trying to avoid this. <laughs> um, and you know, it was a it was a it was a difficult game. 
very difficult game, a very extraordinary game, where we thought we were disadvantaged by the officials. I think that's a nice way of saying it. And um, and I had to analyse that game and make, write a report to the New Zealand Rugby Union after the World Cup in 2007. And that was one of the most difficult processes I've been through because it was just a a game like no other game. Like I probably coached 200 first-class games. I coached 140 tests, so maybe 400 first-class games. Um, and this game was totally different from any other game I'd ever coached and the way it was officiated. And I, the report's in the book. I should read the book. It's a hell of a good book. Um, there's two chapters in the book, word for word from this analysis that was done in Harvey Bay in Australia, which is up north of Brisbane somewhere. We escaped, Rowan and I, from the heat of the media here at the time. Sounds very wise. And anyway, I thought those two combinations, you know, great record going into that game, uh, the questionable officiating in that game, might have been enough to get us reappointed. <laughs> also, you have to you have to reappoint. I didn't think we'd be. Uh, I didn't think we would be reappointed. I say we, Hanson, Smith, and Henry, mm. uh, because it never happened before in 105 years in the history of, of New Zealand rugby. The head coach had last four years, two years or four years, and somebody else would come in yes. and start again with a completely new group of management which was ludicrous when you think about it. But that was the way, the way of the world, and they knew no different, and nobody knew any different, I guess. I think what really, I was going to say why I reapplied, I'm, I'm deviating. Um, when you're an all-black coach, you put a lot of pressure on young men, right, to get up and do the job. And rightly so, there's no outs on that. They've got to get up and do the business. And, and it's So they've got to get themselves in a headspace where they can play the best they can play and and that's your challenge every week and sometimes they don't do it and sometimes they do and um, most times hopefully they're, they're in a pretty good frame of mind but so you expect them to do that and put their body on the line for the country and the team and and so on uh, so when I was when it was my turn to stand up and be counted I knew I had to stand because I knew these guys would be looking at me is he going to stand or is he going to run away, you know? And so I had to stand. I didn't think because of the history that we had much chance. But as I say, I think the real uh, trump card was was the, te- the boys themselves. And so the decision makers asked Richie McCaw and other senior players whether Henry Hanson and Smith should continue, and they said yes. And... Um, so, pretty, pretty, pretty uh, smart choice there. Um, well, I like, yeah. As I say, we had a ninety percent record, and we mm. we uh, had an indifferent sort of game. Like we didn't play as well as we should have, and the French played a lot better than we thought they would. But it was still a very dicey situation. So, mm. I think that put the icing on the cake. Their support and the rest is history. And I think that's changed New Zealand rugby, not because I got reappointed. But they understand now that continuity of people in the management is critical for that team to keep on improving. 
So when I took over in 2004, there was nobody left in the management from 2003. Nobody. As obviously some players were re-elected, most of them probably re-selected. Yes. But nobody from the management. Now, people probably don't understand that or didn't think about that or it wasn't wasn't newsworthy in those days. But today, you know, there's still probably two-thirds, three-quarters of the management are still there who were with me in 2011. And they are world-class resource people for that team. And um, and that's a, a, a major reason why this team has gone from a 70% side to a 90% side. Um, can it go to 100? <laughs> Sometimes. But, you know, that's probably the impossible. But And obviously great athletes. Um, but they were the resource that developed those athletes. And I'm not talking just about Steve Henson or Wayne Smith. There's, there's people in that group who are like Gilbert Anoka, who's the sports psychologist, the people developer, the cultural setter, is the best in the world at what he does. And he's, he's hugely important to that all-black side. Um, Mike Cron, who's now the Ford coach, was a scrum coach when I was taking him, an ex-police detective and apparently a very good police detective. But he is a fabulous coach. He's always looking to improve what he's doing. He's, in a, he's got great uh, technical skill um, and... Like he's, he's, and I could go on. Nick Gill was a strength and conditioning coach, uh, best in the world, in my opinion. Peter Gallagher, the physiotherapist, George Duncan, the muscle therapist, keep people on the field. Um, so it's, it's, and Smithy is outstanding. Steve's obviously outstanding. So you've got a very, a very skilled resource to support this team to be the best. Yeah, it makes it makes a difference, doesn't it? Having uh, having that great team. How did you find the right people to bring alongside you along your journey as a, as a, as a coach? How did those things happen? Was it just luck that you hit certain oh, uh, no, people no, and they no, stuck no, with no, you? No, I'm no, sure no. there's there's more to it than that. No, no, no. Well, I the first thing I had to do was find two guys to work with me as coaches, and like I got Steve Hansen to Wales before I left, and I threw him the. The poisonous chalice or whatever it's called um, and, and I'd done a lot of homework about who was the best Ford coach in New Zealand before I invited them to Wales so I'd done that homework I always knew that Smithy was class like he used to coach the Crusaders when I was coaching the, the Blues and yes. we had a good relationship despite being coaching different teams uh, or competing teams um, yeah, they, they were, like, it was pretty obvious. And I think the role of the head coach or the CEO is to to get the best people you can get, and that will help ensure that the team is going to be successful. Um, like, I treated them as equals. Uh, we, we coached together on an equal on an equal plane. Uh, every press conference, the three of us went to the press conference, uh, so they were, and and that's the way it had to be. Um, when the shit hit the fan, obviously, I had to stand up and and take it. But that, but that's that was part of the responsibility of it, obviously. Mm-hmm. With the with the pressure, um, 
of their role of of coaching the All Blacks, and and you know, and I imagine you know the you had similar pressures in, in Wales and with the Lions and so on. I mean, this wasn't just something that was um, there over the period with the All Blacks. How did you how did you manage that so that you were okay? So that uh, when you got home to your family, that that you were okay. How did you sort of balance those, those things? And uh, well, it's a long story here, really. But you know, as I said before, and I think it's the key to the whole interview is that there was a change from a coach-driven environment to a team-driven environment, and what did that look like? So you had a rep, you had a group of people representing that team called the leadership group, and it was made up of old people like me and young people like, like Tana Umanga and Richie McCaw in the early days. Right? So there were six management people and seven players. And, well, it evolved to seven players. We didn't quite get it right. We had too many initially, but let's cut the story short. So we had 13 people, and they represented the 45. And so they set the the objective and the strategies and the culture and then discussed it with the rest of the guys and fine-tuned it. And so that's what I mean by it was a team-driven model, so the players and the management together drove that team, led by a leadership group. Uh, so basically it was giving the young people who actually play the game ownership of the team. And when they got ownership, they've got more skin in the action and they play more better. Obviously, to take ownership of the team and to lead the team it's not something you say, look, we want you to lead and go out and lead. We have to add to their knowledge about how to do that. And Gilbert led that, Gilbert Anoka. And he was fabulous, as I said before. Uh, so it's, a, it's an educational process as well as as ability to play rugby. You know, So that we had to develop these people in a holistic way, not only as athletes. Um, so that that was the key. And, and when you're leading as a group... You're constantly sharing ideas, and the intellectual property of those people put together is is very very powerful. So it's not just you; it's this group. Um, but in saying that, um, there's still a bit of pressure. Yeah, there's still a bit of pressure, and I think as you get older, you you, you become more capable of running your life to handle that pressure. So. Being the best you can be is very important, and I was uh, I was slow, as I said before, educationally. <laughs> but I was slow to self-analyse and to say, what do you need to do to be the best you can be? So it wasn't until really, uh, until I got into my 50s, I started to know that I had to exercise a lot because it made me feel good. Uh, I had to have a good diet, especially when I was coaching, uh, if I didn't have a, if, like I couldn't have a cooked breakfast, it made me feel sluggish. So I, I just knew you started to learn about yourself and what you had to do to be the best you could be. And I had to work hard. I wasn't a natural coach, so I had to do a lot of homework on the opposition so I could coach well. Um, had good mentors. I've mentioned John Graham, Jock Hobbs was fabulous, Brian Lahore. Uh, guys that you could chew the fat with and talk the challenge with and share the load with and and get ideas from. Um, 
the players became confident to express themselves and, and to say, look, do you think that's the best way of doing this? You know? So they would challenge you, and I think that was important. That's fantastic when you've got that sort of environment yeah, where so that can be that can be. I remember Tana Rumanga saying to me, Ted, do you want a coffee? And I said, oh, I wouldn't mind a coffee, tea. He said, he said, what do you give those team talks for? And I said, well, I thought they could be a wee bit inspirational tea and might give the boys a bit of direction. Huh? Are they for you or for us? <laughs> I didn't like the way the conversation was trending, you know. But he, like he, and I said, what do you reckon? He said, I think they're a bloody waste of time. Wow. And I've been team talking for 30 years. Yeah. Now, in the amateur days, it was the right thing, you know, because you Tuesday, Thursday, play Saturday, just focus the boys. But when you're together all week and you're building from Sunday, or basically from the time the game finishes on a Saturday to the next one, they don't need that. But you're so used to doing it, you thought it was important. I thought I was bloody good at it. <laughs> So, you know, he, those sort of challenges. And that leadership group, that was their job. Challenge the status quo. How can we make it better? Let's not sweep anything under the carpet here. Talk about the elephant in the corner. Otherwise, we're never going to get any better. So having, having team-driven culture, team-driven environment, led by a leadership group of seven players was fabulous we also had a culture they built up uh, which was about self-improvement better never stops and the better never stops culture has taken over that team and underlining all that is the team comes first so it's not about the individual it's about the team and so if you had a guy who was into himself too much uh, he was sorted by the other players, by the leadership Team. group players. Mm. And, you know, people are people and we're all learning and we're all trying to get better and that's normal and, and people into themselves is normal. I just need to, like today, you'll find, even when I was coaching, for example, Kevin Bialamu and Andrew Hall were the two hookers, quite different people, quite different people. But they worked together to get better at their job and they were competing for the same position. Like you see, the guy who watched the All Blacks play now and you see the guys on the bench and Aaron Cruden was the number one, number ten in the world, right? Till Boat Barrett went mad last year <laughs> and played superbly. Yes. Right? So, but those two guys help each other to get better and I remember Bodie scoring the winning try in the World Cup under the sticks with kick, chip, or chip kick and recover and scored under the sticks and Cruden's running down the sideline as a sub... And I get just totally immersed in him, his opposite, his competitor, if you like, totally immersed in supporting him. And it just becomes part of them. Um, and they, they all are concentrating on is doing their best. And if they're lucky enough to get selected, that's a bonus. Sounds pretty simple, but and I'm sure there's a, there's there's a couple of wrinkles here and there. Um, but that's basically what it's like. Well, I think there's some there's some incredible lessons uh, there in the in the stories that you've shared, and I think that you know there's huge parallels to what you've shared around life in the world of rugby, and I guess you know 
many other areas of 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 life how we should live how how we should uh, operate in the business world and, and any form of leadership so that's been fantastic um is there anything else you'd like to share any any last bits tips of advice for uh, New Zealand business leaders? Any view for uh, on, on well, what I, we need to do? To no, I, I said it before. Like very simply, you know. And I I was a slow learner, so I didn't pick it up as quickly as I should. But John Graham had the recipe right when he was headmaster of Auckland Grammar School, and that was that his job was to develop other people. As the leader of the group, his job was to develop other people. He had 13 or 18-year-olds, but he developed others in the staff who were much older than the kids, not much older than the kids, really. So he, he understood that leadership was not about telling people what to do. It was about developing people so that the business took off, developing others to do the job and giving them the tools to do that and giving them the opportunity. And it taught me... Only 30 years to work that out. <laughs> uh. Well, thank you for sharing uh, sharing a little bit of that wisdom with us and having a uh, an impact on those that are listening. It's fantastic. Much appreciated. And uh, I'm going to look forward to diving into your book. Best wishes. Thank Enjoy. The New Zealand Business Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, your strategic and proactive IT partner.